The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Our scripture reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 2. John's Gospel, chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cord, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's just pray together as we begin this morning. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is truth. So now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, on this uh, Remembrance Sunday, we're returning to our series in... John's Gospel, and we've come to the end now of chapter 2. Last week, we were dealing with the sign of turning water into wine, and now we have reached what has become known as the cleansing of the temple, the the cleansing of the temple here in the temple complex. Now, from a theological point of view, this is an important passage. We know that in part because it's actually recorded in all four Gospels. So the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this event, and so does John. So we know that this is particularly significant uh, in terms of the overall message of the Gospel, because all of the Gospel writers feel it necessary to include it. There is one difference. The question arises, did Jesus cleanse the temple once or did he cleanse it twice? Uh, 
because in the synoptics, Jesus cleanses the temple towards the end of his ministry before the passion. And here in John's gospel, he cleanses it at the beginning. There are some differences of opinion on that. Uh, I agree with those who think it happened twice, that Jesus cleansed the the temple on two occasions, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end. Now, it's true that the Apostle John does organize some of the material uh, of Jesus' life and ministry in a more theological way in certain places, uh, not simply chronologically. But I think there is a significance to Jesus cleansing it twice. Both times, Jesus takes his basic challenge to the religious establishment to the heart of Jerusalem, right there into the temple complex, and he takes his claim there, his fundamental claim, his fundamental challenge there to the heart of the religious life of the people. There wasn't a place more important, there wasn't a location more significant to the Jews, to the Israelites, to the people of God than the temple. The cleansing is obviously a harbinger of judgment. It's a warning as well as a prophetic witness to Jesus' identity. In the previous uh, account of the turning of the water into wine there in the first part of chapter 2, when Jesus first begins to display who he is, it's a private sign. So it's family and his disciples there. He's at a family wedding. It's a private sign. It's a private witness. But now, if you look in verse 23, it says that when they've gone up to the feast, uh, they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus is now gone public. He's gone into the heart of the temple complex. He's now performing miracles. And so from a private manifestation of who he is, the second part of the chapter now, chapter 2, takes us into this very public witness to who Jesus Christ is. It's particularly noteworthy that the disciples' interpretation of the event, John alerts us to the fact in verse 17 that there's their initial interpretation, which isn't wrong. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. But their understanding of what takes place in the cleansing is deepened after the resurrection. And we're told that uh, in verse 22. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture. So the disciples looking on see one significance to it. And then they later see a deeper significance to it. And that's always important to remember when you're in the Gospels. And as we go through John's Gospel together, it's always important to remember that for the disciples, it was a gradual realization of the identity of Jesus Christ. For us sitting here, hearing sermons Sunday by Sunday, and we've read it all through and we've seen it all, it's easy for us to lose the impact of this gradual realization, this gradual deepening of their understanding of who Jesus is. So 
I want to deal with the, the account in, in four very brief heads. Father's business, father's house, cleansing father's house, and raising a sanctuary. Father's business, father's house, cleansing father's house, and raising a sanctuary. Let's take a quick look again as we look at father's business. Let's just take a quick look again at the account. Let's review it. So what's happening? Jesus, after the uh, turning of the water into wine in that first sign, he's down in Capernaum together with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they're staying there for a few days. So this is kind of a family and friends time of refreshment. The Lord is preparing to go about his father's business. And I think it's interesting that it's with family and it's with his disciples. It's near the Passover, we're told, which was perhaps the most important of all the Jewish festivals. And so they make together, I think it's implied in the text that as a family and with the disciples, they make together the traditional pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. That's why we can have this incident in the temple, because it's the time of the year when the pilgrimage is being made to Jerusalem, because it's the time of the Passover. And that in itself is significant, because remember, as we've just opened the Gospel of John, John 1 and John 2, the immediate context is John the Baptist having identified Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. And now it's the Passover, and the Lamb is going to his temple at the very beginning of his ministry. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as he goes to go about his father's business, he finds father's house, and remember, Jesus had previously been found doing his father's business in his father's house when he was a boy because his parents found him there in the temple speaking to the priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And he said to his mother, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? So he finds, he returns to father's house and there he finds there The temple court's been turned into a marketplace with all the money changers, and they're selling the animals for sacrifice. And so we see a kind of startling moment in the ministry of Jesus. He makes a whip, and he drives out the animals. This is a dramatic moment in the the Lord's ministry. He drives the animals out of the temple courts. And he drives the money changers out. And the Jews demand a sign that would validate his authority for doing this. What sign are you going to give us that proves you've got the authority to do this? And Jesus says, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. And then John adds that he does various other miracles during the festival and many people trusted in him. So Jesus is 
from the very beginning now, as this first truly public act happens, he's about his father's business. You know, John says in John 5.17, Jesus says in John 5.17, my father is still working and I am working also. So now he's going public with his father's work. Okay, let's consider father's house for a minute then. If we're going to understand the importance of what's happening here and why it happened, we need to think about the significance of the temple. We need to think about the significance of father's house. The temple in scripture is the house of God. It's the house of God. It's the dwelling place of God. It's his appointed dwelling place. In fact, God speaks about both the tabernacle and then the temple, the more permanent dwelling, as my house, my house. What do you do in a house? Well, you live in a house. And so this, was, this place was the symbol of God's covenant presence with his people. And the pattern for this house was given by God himself. So it wasn't any old house. The pattern for the building of the house was given by God. So in Exodus 25, in verses 8 through 9, we read about the first tabernacle. And I'm quoting, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. So there was a specific pattern for the house of God. And then Solomon's temple, as we fast forward to 1 Chronicles 28, so now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and follow all the commands of the Lord your God. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple and its buildings, treasuries, upper rooms, inner rooms, and a room for the mercy seat. The plans contained everything he had in mind for the courts of the house, for the, of the Lord's house, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of God's house, and the treasuries for what is dedicated. Also included were plans for the divisions of the priests and Levites, all the work of service in the Lord's house, all the articles of service of the Lord's house. So there was a plan, and it was God's plan, it was God's pattern. So this was the most important place in the life of Israel. It was where God's glory dwelt amongst his people. The temple was a symbol of the covenant between God and his people, and it was the special place where his glory, his presence was felt and known. In 1 Kings 6, we read, as for this temple you are building, if you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking in them, I will fulfill my promise to you, which I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people, Israel. So if you want to understand why there were strict regulations around the life of the temple, 
why there were such strict regulations about who could enter the holy place and the holy of holies, this is it. It was God's pattern. It was God's house. It was the place his glory dwelt. It was God's throne room. Perhaps the most important expression we could use, it was the tabernacling of his presence. It was God's throne room. Think about the significance of a throne room in the Bible. I mean, uh, if you entered into the king's presence, even in the pagan world, do you remember Esther? There was a concern there that if you entered the king's presence without permission, you would die. You'd be executed. And as you read the Older Testament, you see that God cannot be trifled with. To enter the holy place... To go into the temple, to be in the presence of God was an awesome thing. And so God's throne room was protected. But the temple was also a place of sacrifice. The mercy seat was there so that the priest could enter into God's presence. So this house of stone... Father's house, was now, which was now Herod's temple, not Solomon's temple, of course, was the place of God's dwelling, but it was not an end in itself. And Scripture is clear, the New Testament is clear, that this pattern, this structure, this temple spoke of something greater. It was a symbol of something greater. This is what we read in Hebrews 8, verse 5. These serve, that's the temple, the copy These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So the temple as a tent, as a tabernacle, and of stone was never an end in itself. It was a pattern. It was a copy of something greater. That's That's made clear in the Older Testament. It's made clear in the book of Hebrews as well in the Newer Testament. It's made clear throughout the New Testament, actually. So, Father's house ultimately concerns a sanctuary. And, of course, in Hebrews, we're getting this clue that this sanctuary, uh, this heavenly sanctuary now, is going to be raised up in a unique way. So, when you consider those things together, the pattern that God established for his house, the presence of God in his house, the significance of the glory of God in his house. It's only in the backdrop of understanding the significance of the temple that you can understand Jesus' actions now in the temple complex. Otherwise, it just looks like a man having a temper tantrum. It's not a man having a temper tantrum. It's the significance of the meaning of God's temple that elicits this response from the Lord Jesus. Together these things concerning the temple help us to understand uh, John 2, 17 there, when the disciples remembered, when they saw him do this, zeal for your house will consume me. So that's the significance of Father's house. Let's think about cleansing father's house. Now, what actually happens here, 
marvelously, is predicted in Malachi chapter 3. And this passage today does give me an opportunity to highlight these vitally important scriptures that give us an insight into the significance of the temple. In Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3, cleansing, the cleansing of the temple is predicted. And notice how it mirrors the order of John's first two chapters. Listen to this. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like cleansing lye or full of soap. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So you can see there in Malachi, there's the role of John the Baptist first, clearing the way. And then the messenger of the covenant will suddenly come to his temple. I'm sure that's in John's mind as he's recording this. He will suddenly come to his temple. And when he comes, who will be able to stand when he comes in judgment? When he comes as a refiner of his people. When God's sanctuary, you see, becomes man's sanctuary. And this is the issue with the cleansing of Father's house. It's set for judgment. When, it, when God's house has become man's house, it's set for judgment. In Matthew twenty three thirty eight, when Jesus wept over Jerusalem and predicted the destruction of the temple, he interestingly says, your house is left to you desolate. It's not God's house anymore. God had called it my house. Jesus says, my father's house. But by the end of the gospel in Matthew, it's your house. When God's house, his temple or his church, moves against him, abandons him, who can endure the day of his coming? So, we're to serve God and not ourselves. That's the essence of it. And so the merchants and the animals are driven out with a whip. The money changers' tables are turned over. The coins are scattered everywhere. The sellers of doves are ordered to leave. Why did he do this? The Lord Jesus wasn't opposed to the sacrifices of Moses that Moses had, had required. In fact, he used to, when he healed the sick, he'd send them to go and show themselves to the priest as Moses required. He was there to celebrate Passover. He didn't condemn circumcision or baptism of the Gentiles or the other things that went on in the temple complex. The animals were needed to be available to the pilgrims for the sacrifices. Money changes were needed for the temple tax in the 
Tyrian coinage. People were coming from all over the place with different coins. They had to pay the temple tax in the Tyrian coin. They needed it changed. So what was at issue? Well, there's two things. First of all, the sacrifices and taxes had become corrupt, a corrupt and exploitative system. It was now a corrupt and exploitative system. Do you know that the the annual temple tax and the sale of sacrifices was so lucrative that the Romans insisted the high priest be changed every year because he was so wealthy after one year they insisted he be replaced. He'd become, too, he'd become too powerful. God's house was made into a house of trade. There was a complete collapse of respect for the Lord and for the people who were coming to offer sacrifices. But obviously there was more than that going on. This wasn't just a Jeremiah prophetic sign of a prophet coming to challenge corruption. There's more than that happening This is a messianic manifesto being acted out right in front of the people. It's a messianic manifesto being acted out right in front of the people. Christ is announcing judgment on the whole apparatus and the refusal of inner cleansing. The refusal of the people of an inner cleansing of the whole temple system and its leadership resisting an inner cleansing, and so he was indicating it was soon to be rendered obsolete. And so the final cleansing of the temple in the synoptics leads on to the passion of the Lord Jesus, leads on to the cross. Now, it's possible that the disciples initially, perhaps indicated in verse 17, only saw this in their understanding that that this was a kind of prophetic protest. Look how zealous the Lord is for the temple. He's like Jeremiah. But their understanding is deepened later. And when this happens, when when this, this driving out of the changes and the animals happens, the Jewish leaders are indignant. And it's interesting, they don't actually contest the charges that Jesus makes, they just challenge his authority for doing it. So they don't say, what are you doing? This is a completely just and righteous system. There's nothing to see here. There's nothing going on here. What you, what's, what's all this about? No, they challenge his authority. What sign of authority will you show us? Of course, Paul gives us an insight into that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22. He says, Jews demand signs. He was summarizing the unbelief of the Jewish establishment throughout the Gospels there. This demand is an attempt to validate the claims of Christ by means of something else. What what sign will you show us that validates what you're saying, what you're doing? What experience, what argument will satisfy our standard that we can trust. Now, isn't that the great temptation for us? Isn't that the, the temptation of our own culture? What, uh, 
What sign are you going to give? What, what experience, what argument can you make that will satisfy my standard of what can be trusted? It's why Christ is rejected on cultural grounds today. Or people try and reinvent him as the hippie climate change Jesus or some other kind of Jesus that isn't actually taught in the Gospels because they want a validation based on their standard. And if he doesn't meet this standard, if he doesn't meet our cultural criteria, then it's not to be trusted. It's actually faith in Christ, Scripture says, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not an achievement. It's certainly not something that you validate and then accept. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's not a refutation of Christian apologetics, but Christian apologetics has to happen After all, that's one of the things I spend most of my time doing. It has to happen in terms of the standard that God has established in Christ, not our own. God's judgment on unbelief, represented at this point by the Jewish authorities and their running of the temple, is set out clearly in the synoptic accounts when Jesus is again at a later point in the temple complex. And his authority is being challenged again as he's teaching in the temple complex. And so we read. This is the parable of the vineyard owner. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. Notice he leased it to tenants. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers, but they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. They beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew he said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him. And went away. He told that parable in the temple complex, and verses 10 and 11, the stone that the builders rejected, follows that parable in all three of the synoptic gospels. And that's very significant. Christ is saying, I'm the stone. I am the cornerstone. 
After the second cleansing of the temple, he declared the temple and its worship null and void and declared that their house would be left to them desolate. This is what we read in Matthew 24. And Jesus, as Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Then he replied to them, don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Let's just draw out a couple of implications of this really quickly. First, one of the things for ourselves, it is right to be angry about the right things. It's right to be angry about the right things. This incident shatters the Francis of Assisi model of Jesus. That he was never angry, never stirred up, sort of passionless, sort of floating on an even keel throughout life. Now he was angry, but he was angry about the right things. We can be angry about the right things too, the state of the church, the state of our culture, the state of the nation. Rebellion against God. However, Paul, the apostle, and James say, Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. James, the apostle, says, my dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear. Slow to speak and slow to anger, for man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. So we have to be careful, don't we, to discern. Man's anger is not always God's anger. So we have to discern, we must be careful to discern the difference. So we should be angry about the right things. Zeal for God and his house should consume us as well. But before the sun goes down on it, give it all to the Lord. Don't go to bed angry about the U.S. election or whatever it may be. Right? Make sure you give all of it to the Lord first. Don't, go, don't let the sun go down on your anger against the culture or the nation. Surrender it all to the Lord. So that's the first thing. The second application, I think, The Lord Jesus clearly will judge a corrupt and disobedient church that refuses inner cleansing as surely as he judged the old temple. He will judge a corrupt and disobedient church that refuses an inner cleansing as surely as he judged the old temple. All the shaking that's going on in the world right now, especially in the Western world right now, all of the shaking that's taking place, I'm convinced is part, it's a part of Christ coming to his temple in judgment. All the privileges that we've had, all the sacrifices that have been made, and the apostasy in response of the church, the disobedience of the church, the faithlessness of the church. He's a refiner's fire. 
Now, I mentioned earlier that this event would have been reminiscent for the disciples of Jeremiah the prophet. Where Jeremiah points to the hypocritical worship of the temple and says it's bringing national judgment. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 7. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house called by my name and say, We are delivered. So we can continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. So Jeremiah is warning the whole nation that if you behave, if you go after other gods and you live in apostasy after all the blessing and privilege of the nation... And think about us today, all the preaching of the gospel, all the inheritance, and then come into the Lord's house and continue doing all these detestable acts. Can we expect not to be judged? Finally, raising a sanctuary. That's the cleansing of the sanctuary, but that's not the end, is it? Thankfully. Judgment on the house is not the end. In response to the question asked, by whose authority are you doing this? The answer is a startling one. It's an earth-shattering one. It's a revelatory one. Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, when you fast forward to the end of the synoptics in Mark and Matthew, we see that this statement here that Jesus made is twisted at the trial of Jesus. This, this, what he says here is actually cited in his trial. But it's twisted into a subversive claim by false witnesses that he said he, he would demolish this sanctuary built by human hands and raise another one not built by human hands. And Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say he was going to smash the sanctuary down of Herod. Their temple would be destroyed, but it would be destroyed by their own unbelief, by their own intransigence. So when Jesus said, go ahead and destroy this temple, there was actually a double meaning, wasn't there here? There was a double meaning. Herod's temple to be destroyed. You go ahead and destroy it then. By your unbelief. But also, of course, his crucifixion. His own body, which the disciples realize in verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Verse 21, he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. The issue now was that one of these two temples was a false temple. And the religious leaders couldn't possibly believe because there's a double meaning here, that the temple, the false temple, was the one that they controlled. Can't possibly be true. The truth is, and what this shows us, is that we cannot substitute any worshipping institution for the Lord himself and get away with it. Not even a temple 
Not even the place where God's glory dwelt. Not even the place where they had formerly kept the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets of stone and where God's Shekinah glory had been present. You can't substitute any institution for the Lord himself and get away with it. And they saw that Jesus' focus in his ministry wasn't national Israel and their temple and their institution, but the kingdom of God, and that was intolerable to them. It was better then to kill Christ than for the nation that they ruled to perish. We'll come to that when we get to John 11 and the prophetic witness of the high priest. But the worst that man can do in the end only furthers the sovereign purposes of God. So the worst that they could do to the Lord only fulfilled and advanced his purposes. Jesus' declaration obviously concerns his body. We can see that now and the resurrection which the disciples then understood later. He had come to his vineyard but they killed the son. They killed the prophets before. But now they killed the son. And this would mean final judgment on Jerusalem and the old temple system, which, remember, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And it would mean the building of a new sanctuary where the stewardship of the vineyard would be given to others. And that is the church of the living God, Jew and Gentile. And this is the beauty and marvel and glory of this text for today. In the midst of the harbinger of judgment, in the midst of what of Christ coming to his temple in judgment. Christ is the true temple. That's the, mess, that's, that's the essence of his answer. The Christ is the true temple, for the temple is a symbol of the covenant relationship between God and his people. It's where he dwells. It's where his glory is present. It's where the Lord is. And there are some wonderful visions of the temple in the Older Testament. And one of them is in Ezekiel 48, which symbolizes there the glorious presence of God in Christ's kingdom. Christ is the true tabernacling presence of God. That's why John is so careful to use that term in John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. Here's the true sanctuary. Here's the true temple. It's only hinted at in this temple of stone. But here's the true temple. Remember that Simeon saw it at at the dedication of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the glory of your people, Israel, the Shekinah. Here he is. You see, it's not simply that Christ fulfills the meaning of the temple. Rather, Christ is the meaning of the temple for which the temple existed. He is the meaning for which the temple had existed. This is why throughout John's gospel, he offers, as we're going to see as we go through this series, waters, the water of life out of the temple, just as Ezekiel saw it. It's why he's the Lamb of God destined for temple service. It's why he impresses on his followers... God's law in their hearts that was formerly written on tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. 
It's why when he dies, the temple worship and its Aaronic priesthood legally ends with the rending of the temple veil in Matthew 27, 51. You know, at the death of the Lord Jesus, the lamb fulfilling his temple service, the temple curtain is rent in two, and it legally ends the Aaronic priesthood forever. It's why he prophesies then the destruction of the temple at the end too. Finally, there's another glorious truth. And this is perhaps most important now as we come to the Lord's table. In Christ, he is the sanctuary. In Christ, we are now this temple because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is all over the New Testament. It's everywhere. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy. And that is what you are. God's sanctuary. And God's sanctuary is holy. And that is what you are. The Old Testament prophecies that speak of the rebuilding of the temple, except where there's reference to the rebuilding of Zerubbabel's Old Testament sanctuary, refer to Christ and the building of his church, where he himself is the foundation and the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And in this temple, Scripture says, we are priests, 1 Peter 2, 5. Do you know today, you are a priest in God's sanctuary, in God's temple. And it's a priestly order after the order of Melchizedek. You don't have to be ironic anymore. It's after the order of Melchizedek, for Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we offer our bodies, says Paul in Romans 12:1, as living sacrifices today. And this is a sweet savor to God, for we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Hebrews 13, 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For Christ suffered outside the gate. The implication of this marvel is actually given to us by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 16. He says this. What agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves, says Paul, from every impurity of flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in 
the fear of God. Since we have these promises, since we are God's sanctuary, let's cleanse ourselves. What a privilege. What an amazing thought today that we are priests unto God. And here amongst us is where his Shekinah glory dwells. And we come to the signs of his covenant. We have an altar to which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is Christ's body, his sanctuary, where he died and was raised again to life so that the Holy Spirit might dwell in us. So this morning, as his people, as his temple, let's accept an inner cleansing from Christ. Let's welcome Christ to cleanse his temple today. For we are living stones. We are sons and daughters. Let's come to this altar, to this living bread, to the symbols of the covenant. And in so doing, we are readied to go about Father's business, to serve Father's house, that his kingdom might be extended and a river flow out from his temple, as Ezekiel saw, to the very ends of the earth. Let's come to the table now. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.